Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great honor to welcome Chief Amazement Officer of Shepherd Presentations, author of Amaze Every Customer Every Time, Shep Hyken. Welcome to the show, Shep. Hey, great to be here, Aiden. Thanks for having me. It's really good to have you, man. And, and I was we were talking off air about the amount of uh, presence you have. I mean, you're a TED speaker, you're an author, you have a fantastic weekly newsletter on hiking.com, which I highly recommend for everybody to check out. You're so on the pulse with what is so needed in today's world, which is amazing customers. And it's we've, we were talking about today is the day that Amazon have announced their purchase of Whole Foods and their obsession about the customer. And so many people must be queuing up for your services, Shep. Yes, we get calls every day, but the more the better, no doubt about that. You know, I'm excited about what Amazon is doing with uh, Whole Foods. And um, I know we have a lot to talk about, but um, right off the top, I'll just tell you, I think that Amazon, as it is a business example, has become like the, the standard in what great companies are. I am a huge, huge Amazon fan. Um, I know they're the big guy that may have disrupted uh, not just the book industry, but many other industries. And you can see what they're getting ready to do to the grocery store industry. I think, we're, I think there's some exciting times for consumers because Amazon is going to get everybody to up their game. Yeah. People look at somebody like Jeff Bezos and they look at the, the progression of Amazon and it was a tech company originally, but he absolutely obsessed about the customer all the time and put the customer at the center of the, of the product. And I find it really interesting that he bought Zappos mainly to actually buy the customer service. It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't just about the great product. It was about the way they did things. And it's likewise with, with Whole Foods. Yeah. So Whole Foods, uh, you know, known for fresh, organic foods. Uh, the, the joke is it's not just Whole Foods. It's Whole Paycheck. You pay a little bit more. And I think that's – and by the way, that alone is an interesting play because everybody has thought that Amazon really is a price-sensitive low price provider and i think it they always discount uh but i'll tell you how confident amazon is amazon is willing to put the competitors prices though it'll say there's three uh places you can buy this product less expensive and they tell you where to go and yet i'll bet you more than half the people they may check them out they come back to amazon if not most of the people the other thing that's interesting is that 64 percent of the households in the united states have Amazon Prime memberships. Think about that. And now they've created a new, I don't want to call it a payment system, but a new plan for lower income people who normally can't afford to just shell out $99 for Prime. Uh, they're saying, hey, we're going to give you guys a, a great deal. Uh, number one, you're underserved. We want to serve you. Um, it's not fair that you don't get some of the advantages at others. So we're going to make it so reasonable. You can pay a, a small monthly fee of, I don't know if it's 4 or $5 a month, but it's, it's definitely less than $99 a year. And it's done monthly. And it allows an underserved market uh, who, for lack of a better term, if you want to say in some cases people in need, can't afford some of the nice things that we have to have access to better service. Yeah. So uh, I think that's pretty cool. That is awesome. And, and we, we might come back to Amazon because 
they they do encapsulate so much of what you you talk about and you advise many companies about. But it'd be great, Shep, to get a feel of your background because because I was saying that you work so hard backstage to to give an amazing front stage presence. Well, thank you. So I'll give you a real quick background all the way from the age of 12 years old, where I started my first business. I, it was a magic show birthday party business. And I'll give you the very quick story. Uh, came home from my first magic show. My mom said, you're going to go upstairs and write a thank you note. I mean, there was more to the conversation than that, but that was the end. And my dad said, great idea. And in a week, I want you to call the parents that hired you to perform at that little boy's birthday party. And I want you to thank them again on the phone. And then I want you to make sure that they were happy with the job that you did and find out what they liked about your show. Get some feedback. And by the way, I don't know if you use the word feedback, but he said, find out, you know, what they liked. And I go, great idea. And then he said, and by the way, if they really liked you and they give you good compliments, they had a little, uh, the little boy that I performed for had a sister ask if that sister needed a magic show for her birthday. And any of the parents that were standing in the back of the room, would they be willing to give me their names and phone numbers so I can call them? And, you know, within a year, I'm I'm like full time magician <laughs> doing eight to 10 magic shows a week on top of going to school. Uh, in addition to that, every summer I had a summer job. And for several of those summers, I worked uh, pumping gas at a gas station. And eventually I went to work for that company full time while I was in college, still doing my magic shows. And by the way, by that time, I was working in nightclubs and, um, you know, doing my comedy magic act and uh, but during the day, during, on the weekends, during the day, I would work in the oil companies, either their headquarters during the week and out in the field uh, at a gas station on the weekends. We had about 100 and some odd gas stations. So it wasn't like a tiny company. Uh, but obviously, it's not a big company like a major oil company either. But the point is, I'll never forget, we're a self-serve station. And it's, a, gosh, probably the coldest day of the year here in St. Louis. And an elderly woman pulls up. She had to be about 80 years old, I'm guessing. And I said, I, I ran out of the building and I said, uh, and my manager was still in the building. So it wasn't like I left things unattended. No, the manager was in the building. I went out and I said, ma'am, let me pump the gas for you. You stay in the car. So that to me is an attitude of service. And my mom and dad taught me, say thank you, follow up, make sure you're doing a good job. Uh, there are a lot of other lessons that I was learning. But the point is, by the time I got out of college, and I'm in the real world, I understood what cu customer service was all about. So it was back, way back in 1983. Uh, I did not have a job. The oil company had decided to sell their, their stations to different groups of investors. And what was I going to do? I saw a couple of motivational speakers. And I said, with my entertainment background and my little business background, I went to college. I knew I took speaking classes. I knew, I knew how to write a speech. So I thought. I got into the speaking business. Uh, I said, I could do what those guys are doing. And that's really how my business started. So for the first, I'm going to say, uh, well, more than 10 years, probably about 15, 18 years, I was primarily a speaker. You would hire me to go to your meeting. And the topic that I focused on was customer service. So all my research, all my work was in that area. And one day I decided to create a training product around my speech. So I started hiring trainers to deliver my content in a full day format or a multiple day format, which was really great. We, a lot of people, they go to hiking.com and they learn about who Shep is. But if you go to the customer focus, T-H-E, the customer focus.com, you'll learn more about our training side. 
And to me, that's that's kind of a long term play. I don't necessarily have to be the star of the show uh, to be successful in that business. But these guys who do the training, they're even better than I am. And uh, I loved it. There was an article that came out just today, as a matter of fact. Uh, one of my trainers was up in in Chicago, or not in Chicago, Toronto. He actually was doing a keynote speech. They're also they're great speakers as well, but most of what they do is training and consulting. He gave a speech to about 400 people in the travel industry, and they actually did a summary and they wrote the article. And I'm going, you know what? He gets it. I'm so glad I have these people working for me because they're just wonderful. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's kind of the background. That's where we are today. So uh, I, I'm hired to go out around the world and speak at events and conferences. Uh, I write a lot of books and articles, and uh, I have a wonderful team that goes out and delivers my training. And we have an online virtual university as well. Shepherd Virtual Training. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it Just as an aside, I have a fun little website or a URL called sheptv.com, sheptv.com. And that takes you straight to my YouTube channel where I have over 500 videos that are all short little customer service lessons. And yeah, I'm giving it away, but you know what? The more you give, the more you get. It's called the law of reciprocity. That's what happens to good people doing good things. And I hope I'm a good person doing everybody a service. I put a lot of content out there. And anybody that wants to learn how to be better at what they do when it comes to customer service and experience, uh, hopefully I've given them a lot of tools to be able to do that. Yeah, you, you know what I see, Chef, when, when I looked at the amount of content you do, you, you do, I mean, some people would go, well, he's giving it away. Like, why, what's he doing that? Like, he's, he's a consultant for all these amazing companies, US, uh, you know, you're in the media, you're on Forbes, you're on CBS, NBC, everywhere. And people will, will question that. But for me, you, in, you embody the idea of authenticity and digital marketing, where the whole idea of digital marketing is you give it away and then people... You, you extend your reach as well and your virtual training because the biggest challenge I'm sure you have is scaling yourself. Right, right. And that's that's the reason for the trainers and uh, the on, online training, the virtual training, because now, uh, you know, it's available. Uh, you know, it's the question is this, Aiden, how would you like me anytime you need me to be sitting across the desk from you, giving you support in your role uh, when it comes to, you know, either talking to a customer, uh, selling to a customer, even talking to a colleague at work. And, um, you know, well, gosh, how, how would you do What would that be worth? You know, well, the truth is it, it's maybe worth a lot. I hope it is anyway. <laughs> but the truth is it's very economical because now I literally can do that. I have these courses on general customer service, uh, you know, taking it a step further. I have a whole program on complaints. And uh, I've got a leadership course. How do you create that customer-focused culture? And so these are all available at a very, very reasonable price so that people can can take this. I wrote a book. My, my second to last book was called The Amazement Revolution. And really, that's what I want to create. When it comes to customer service and customer experience, I want everybody to be amazed at the businesses that they do business with. And people ask me, Shep, what do you do for a living? And I don't tell them, I'm, uh, well, I will eventually tell them I'm a customer service and experience expert, but the first thing I do is respond with a question. Have you ever walked away from a business and thought to yourself, wow, those people, they're just amazing at what they do. They're amazing how helpful they are, how friendly they are, how good they are. Well, that's what I help my clients do. And then the next question is, well, how do you do that? Then I begin to tell them. <laughs> first, I want them to understand the outcome is what it's all about. And when I look at the insights you gave us about your parents and what they were telling you, 
I find it amazing, right, that the mentorship from your parents and that outside the norm teachings and lessons that you receive at such a young age are so important. That was embodied in you and that was blooded into you from such a young age. It became your skill. I guess, you know, everybody has a superpower or two or three. And I think my parents instilled some good values. I think most parents instilled good values on people. You know, Nordstrom is a great example of this. Everybody's familiar with Nordstrom pretty much all over the world. Uh, when I go, people know who Nordstrom is. The most amazing legendary service and the legend is, it's a long story, old story, has to do with a guy returning tires that he bought, a, that he thought he'd bought in a Nordstrom store. And the customer service person or the sales person, whatever you want to call them, actually taking them back, even though everybody knows Nordstrom never sold tires. And there's a whole story behind that. Here's the point. Uh, when you get to Nordstrom and you want to go to work there, there's a question they ask in the interview process. And the question is simple. What is your definition of customer service or some derivative of that question? There are a hundred, maybe there's a thousand right answers. There's also almost an equal number of wrong answers. So there's no one right answer. It's all about the attitude and the philosophy the individual has toward taking care of other people. So that's an important concept is that they hire and good companies hire service-minded people. The second piece of this is, is you know, I guess, you know, when you think about, it, is, is it common sense? It really is common sense. Uh, you just have to do what's right. And sometimes there's guidelines. I hate when there's rules, but if there's guidelines and people stay within the guidelines, then they're gonna do what's right. So empower people to make good decisions. And if they don't make a good decision, teach them how to get back on track. And if they are smart people, they're not gonna make that bad decision again. And you're gonna be happy that you work with this person, mentored them, coached them. And by the way, my parents mentored me. The companies that I worked for uh, usually had a good boss. By the way, the boss at the gas station, when I went out and pumped that lady's gas, I came back in and my manager said to me, what did I just see you do? I thought I was going to get a compliment, but instead he berated me. He said, we are a self-service gasoline station. We don't go out there and give full service. That lady's going to expect that the next time. Oh. And my response to him was, well, I hope she does. And she comes here and not to the station that's across the street and diagonal to us. Brilliant. Yeah. And what's yeah, the, yeah. how did he react to that? I hope well, I mean, it was just, it was, uh, I mean, I, I was supposed to do what my manager asked me, but I just told him that's why I did it. I mean, I didn't become confrontational, but I told him that was my reasoning behind it. I don't know if he agreed with me or didn't agree with me, but I know this, I didn't agree with him. Yeah. Do you know what, Chef, like you, you said about all the content on YouTube, etc. And I find it really interesting that it's proven that if you do that little bit extra, no matter what it is, it's like you going out and pumping that gas or with the magician trick, you know, going and making sure everybody's happy, etc. If you go that little extra yard, little mile, centimeter even, you will be ahead of everyone else. Yet, so few people do it. You make a sacrifice somewhere. So, you know, you get up earlier, you, you either tunnel under or you go and you build an extension or you go up on the top and build an extra floor in your life to actually fit somewhere. So you either don't sleep, you either get up earlier or else you sacrifice something. You just said something that's really important. And I think everybody needs to hear this so it doesn't just fly by. Uh, you know, you mentioned how hard I might work. But at the same time, you said 
Uh, sometimes it's just something little, a little thing, a small thing. I'm getting ready to write an, an article about uh, thinking small. And, and really, the best companies in the world, it's, it's great if you can, uh, you know, make some radical change. And I think that everybody, when they start a company, sometimes the startup is to think big. But once you're established, the key is to get small. And by that, uh, it's just small, constant thinking of better ways to do something. Not blow it away, but even if it's just 1% better. Um, I, I just came back from Australia where I worked with Volkswagen, uh, the VW Australia uh, group. And that was the whole theme of the meeting. Think small. And I, oh, that's cute and clever. You know, I'm th- I always think of the Volkswagen as the little beetle, the car. Think small. No, but what he was saying is don't think small like the car. Think small in terms of the improvements that you make. Just make a lot of small improvements. Look at every little touch point, every little opportunity. How can I make that even a little bit better? Sometimes it might just be an attitude adjustment. I'm just going to be a little bit friendlier or I'm going to put a little bit more energy into it, be a little bit more enthusiastic. But sometimes you may come up with something that really truly is an opportunity to improve on something that's even just slightly so small. You do that all the time and you're going to blow away everybody. Yeah, and I always, I always think of that that mindset as an athlete, right? So, so they'll always try and shave off a microsecond, or you know, what can I do differently? It's the same thing in just a different field. Yeah, and if you think about it, uh, I talk about this concept of consistency, and the thing I talk about from the standpoint of consistency isn't that everything's always the same; it's the attitude the employee comes to work with, and I use actors on stage. As an example, whenever they go out on stage to do their show, they're always going to try to do their best performance. Athletes go onto the field. You know, I I just uh, here in the U.S., uh, we just finished the Stanley Cup finals. It was Pittsburgh against Nashville and uh, Nashville lost. Uh, Do you think they went out there and they played a mediocre game? Do you think they went out there and did anything less than their best? I don't think so. They went out there to play the best game they've ever played in their life. And every single game that they played, that was what they were trying to do. They weren't trying to say, well, it's a seven-game series, hopefully. It could be a four-game series if we get beat for nothing. But it's you know, a seven-game series. Somebody's going to win. I think uh, you know, it's early in the series. Why don't we just lay back a little bit? Nobody ever thought about that. No. They went out there at each and every game, each and every shift, each and every moment they were on that ice. They were looking to be the best team they could ever be, individually the best player they could ever be. And if employees come to work with the same attitude, I want to be so good today that I'm even better than yesterday, I think that's a pretty strong attitude to have. Yeah, and it's a hard one to foster, isn't it? And it kind of reminds me, we mentioned Netflix. And, you know, Netflix as well, I know it's a technology company and they don't have a physical touch point with people. But they absolutely obsess over the user experience. And, and it's quite similar to customer experience. Yeah. So what I think Netflix and any online company tries to do is to emulate the in-person experience, but just make it more convenient. And that's what Amazon's done. Uh, Netflix, when you come on, there's a section that says recommended just for you. And that's based on what you've looked at in the past. I don't know if you've ever, uh, if you remember Blockbuster video, but basically Netflix put Blockbuster that had stores almost on every street corner. There were many, many uh, Blockbusters. And unfortunately, Netflix put them out of business. And the reason is, is they basically were able to duplicate 
the in-store experience online. And they'd say, you know, aside from maybe a better business model, I think it was, it was a, a more cost-effective business model for the customer. They didn't, you know, they can get all the video, you know, back in the day before you can download and stream, it was, hey, we're gonna send you two or three DVDs and just send back and we'll send you more. Just create this list, we'll just keep sending you. And it wasn't, didn't cost any extra to do that. It was just, that was your monthly fee. So I like their business model, but um, today, go on Netflix, go on Amazon. You know, they'll start making recommendations based on your ba- your past buying patterns. Yeah, and so so they obsess about the customer, whether that's a virtual or an in-person customer. What, Shep, what, what type of advice? So I, I've seen many golden rules you've given across in many of your talks. Maybe a few for our audience. What would you recommend? Well, the golden rule, according to the Bible, is to do unto others as you would want done unto yourself. And that's not a bad philosophy when it comes to dealing with customers and any relationship. By the way, when I talk about customers, it could be somebody you work with, your internal customer. It could be the person that you typically think of as a customer. You might be in a business where you have clients, and that's what you call them, members, guests. Uh, In the medical industry, your customer is a patient. So we're using the word customer to catch everybody here. Um, So if there is a better version of the golden rule, it's my friend Tony Alessandra's platinum rule, which is rather than treat people the way you know you yourself would want to be treated, treat people the way they would like to be treated because sometimes that's different. And I'll give you an example. There is a, a bellman who works at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel near where I live, and he went on vacation. And I said, so uh, do you get to take advantage of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel? He said, but I just like to get away from it. So there is an example of, hey, I don't want to be treated the same way I treat my customers. I like to be treated differently. So uh, I think that's that's a good thing, the platinum rule. I have a belief that customer service is not a department. It's a philosophy. Most people think service is for the frontline people. But the reality is everybody's involved in service. It belongs to the CEO, to the customer service department to the janitor, maintenance guy, the mail person, the accountant in a company, everybody's involved. If they're not supporting somebody who you would call a customer, they're probably supporting or having some impact on somebody that is dealing with the customer. Not long ago, I worked with an organization where everybody in the audience owned maintenance or janitorial companies. Uh, So if you go into an office building in the evening, you see janitors cleaning offices. And this was uh, a great guy, he had a philosophy. He said, you know, I try to instill upon the janitors that work for me, just how important their job is. These guys and women need to go out and they need to make sure that when the, the customer, in other words, the employees of the company come in in the morning, they've got a comfortable, good, clean place to work. It plays with their morale and their psyche. So the whole goal is make people know how important their job is. The guy in the warehouse who never, ever impacts a customer face to face, if he or she doesn't pull the right item off the shelf or, you know, proper, it doesn't properly pack up the item and it breaks during shipment. When the customer gets the box and opens it up, they're going to be disappointed. And you know whose fault that was? That was the person in the warehouse who never directly interacts with the customer. Everybody has some impact on a customer. They just need to be told where and how so that they understand how important their job is. I remember the great story of FedEx where 
they changed the one that they were suffering or struggling and the one place they changed was the end point with the customer which was the driver and they trained those guys they groomed them they got them dressed up you talk about this being absolutely important well i believe you dress appropriately for whatever situation you're in you just mentioned the cab driver and is this the segue into me telling you this story <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah because i i love this story because and do you know what shep i i saw a great quote and um i was writing an article myself on retail and i suppose the the rebirth of retail with amazon etc and it's a benjamin franklin quote the taste of the roast is often determined by the handshake of the host and it reminds Oh, i love that i'm writing that down the yeah, taste the ta of the roast the taste of the roast is often determined by the handshake of the host it reminded me of your your cab driver story which i'd love if you told our audience sure well, whether Ben Franklin said it or not, that's one of the best quotes I've heard in a long time because it's so true. Um, and I'll, I'll get to the uh, cab driver story in a quick sec. I'll give the abbreviated version of it because, uh, you know, where typically I tell it on stage in front of a big group of people. Uh, but what you just said is so important. And I'll give you an example why. Food can be good and make everybody happy. And then there's a mistake. And it's the attitude of that server taking care of you at the restaurant that makes it like that. So, oh, don't worry about it. Not a big deal. And but if the attitude of the server was negative and wasn't really attentive, now we got a mistake. Now I'm mad. And basically it's it's so so many problems can be eliminated when people are just trying to do the right thing, yeah. even if they're not succeeding. The customer accepts that they are doing everything they can to help out. So, all right, so here's what happened with the cab driver story. And I know we talked a little bit about dressing appropriately. I met this cab driver on the hottest day of the summer in Dallas, Texas. It had to be the hottest day of the summer. The guy was wearing a t-shirt and shorts and it was the end of the day. He it obviously, wrinkled, he was a wrinkled mess. He'd been sweating. He'd been working hard. His hair was messed up. Looked like he hadn't shaven in who knows, maybe a week. And for all I know, when I looked at this guy, he hadn't showered in a week. I mean, he kind of looked that, that way. Uh, but when he, he told me he was going to take my bags, put them in the back, and it was nice and cool in the cab, I thought, how, you know, look at this guy. The air conditioners probably don't even work. But no, he was, he was correct. It was nice and cool. Not only that, it was spotlessly clean. And he jumped in the front seat after putting my bags away and offered me a piece of candy. He had a dish of candy on the uh, front seat, and he offered me a soda. Uh, he offered me, uh, he, he had two newspapers sitting on the seat next to me. When I sat down, he said, those are for me to take. He had the local Dallas paper in a USA today. And he said, none of this costs extra. It's a flat rate to the airport. Just like any honest cab driver would charge you. It's $22. And I thought to myself, wow, this guy's good. Now, my first impression was he kind of looked like a bum. And now it's like, I don't even notice that anymore. Now I will tell you, people say, why did he look that way? It was the end of the day. And oh, actually, I'll tell you, let me let me finish the story about what happened. And then I'm going to tell you what what happened um, like a couple of months later when he picked me up again. Because then I got to see what Frank looked like okay. <laughs> before the day began. <laughs> so, <laughs> he looked pretty tired. So he gave me this ride to the airport. And on the way, uh, he, he started talking to me, asking me where I'm from. What do I do? I talk about building rapport is important. And obviously, if I'm a, a customer that doesn't want to talk and, and we got to have conversations into the future because I would always he would pick me up and take me around every time I would come back to Dallas, I'd always call him. 
And he would tell me things like, yeah, people don't want to talk. I'm not going to talk to him. He says, you seem like a friendly guy. I asked you where you're from. You told me, you know, what were you doing here in Dallas? You know, what do you do for a living? All those kinds of questions. He even offered to show me one of the famous sites in Dallas is the is a fountain. Uh, it's called uh, the Mustangs at Las Colinas. It's life-size statues of horses running across water. It's at a big office area. And it's right on the way to the airport. And he told me about it. He said, it's only going to take a minute. And we even stopped off and we saw that. And he's not going to charge me any extra money. Well, you know, when we got to the airport, what a great guy. I mean, sodas, newspapers. I got to see the fountain. Big tip, huge tip. And I couldn't wait to come back and do business with this guy again. Now, that first impression was a little off-putting. I wasn't sure what I was going to get. But the cool thing is, once the good things start to happen, and not just one, but a number of good things happen, I stopped to think. I didn't even think about what the guy was looking at. And that, that in itself is a lesson. Uh, if something bad happens, a negative experience, you know, depending on what type of business you're in, the, they say an average of eight to 12 good things has to make up to eliminate something bad that happens, even if it's just a small little, you know, impressionistic type of thing. Well, the way Frank looked was negative. Now, it turns out, again, hottest day of the year, end of the day, he's tired, he's sweaty, he's, the clothes are wrinkled, and the hair, there's nothing you can do about the hair. But it was funny, one morning he picked me up at like six something in the morning on an early flight. He took me where I needed to be, and I'd never seen Frank clean shaven. He had just come from home. He looked spotlessly clean and shaven and right clothes and everything he had on. Then he picked me up at four o'clock in the afternoon. He was wrinkled. He was tired. And it looked like he hadn't shaven in three or four days. So I guess the guy gets a five o'clock shadow sometime around (laughs) seven o'clock in the morning. So by the end of the day, he probably looks like he hasn't shaved in a few days. So what was cool about this story is is that Frank, you know, he's an entrepreneur, as most cab drivers don't think of themselves as this, but they are truly entrepreneurs. They get to rent or lease their cab for the day or the week, and they get to make as much money as they can possibly make driving that cab. So Frank figured out if he waited at the airport, he could wait two or three hours to pick up somebody that would hopefully go downtown. Or he could be so good that he could give his business card away and people would start calling him and he might have to wait 15, 20 minutes at the airport uh, after he parked his car and went inside and waited for the customer versus waiting two and three hours in the parking lot. And you can do the math. For every trip that these other people were doing, he was taking three or four trips um, you know, for his customers. He was making almost $100,000 a year, actually a little over $100,000 a year as a taxi cab driver when other drivers were making maybe around 20. And this is back when he first started. Today, people would make a little bit more. But he cracked the code. He figured out that great customer service is going to bring people back. And I love telling the story. And the best part of the story happened after the first trip when I received a thank you note several days after Frank dropped me off uh, (laughs) at the airport. I get a thank you note. You know, we exchanged business cards. He sent me a thank. He must have met my mom. (laughs) (laughs) That's a CRM, man. He's got a customer relationship management software. (laughs) Brilliant. But it's a great story. And I think that if you can take the mundane, ordinary, normal, easy to understand job of a cab driver, and you can make something special of that, I mean, elevate to a point where, I mean, he was making a lot of money back then. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't, by the way, he's retired today, but, uh, that's pretty impressive. What can any company do to bump up their service, to build a relationship where customers 
can't wait to come back and do business with them again. That's what it's all about. Yeah, and it, it, there's a couple of other lessons there. Like I, I find, you know, you talked about Frank, but we also talk about the guy in the back, the backstage in the back of a company who's packing shelves. And if if you reframe their role, like a taxi driver, you're an entrepreneur, you're not a taxi driver, you're a customer service representative, you're not a guy stacking shelves. They feel part of a bigger mission. They feel part of this company. You're not just a cog in a wheel. You are the whole machine. You are part of that. People actually come up a bit then. They feel more validated. Everybody has two jobs. No matter what job they're hired to do, they need to always think of, what are my two jobs? Number one is the actual job I'm hired to do. And number two is I take care of my customer. Now that customer might be internal or it might be external, but I know my job is to take care of the customer. Brilliant. Well, Shep, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I highly recommend people check out hiking.com, check out your YouTube channel, the virtual training programs, read your books, amaze every customer every time, and the cult of the customer etc etc it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you shepherd a hiking well thank you (laughs) shepherd was great talking to you you too thank you so now on the innovation show it's a great honor to welcome jordan Wan, ceo and founder of closer iq welcome to the show jordan thanks for having me aiden it's great to be here in your offices in Park Avenue in new york before we get started before we talk about closer iq and what the product does It'd be great to talk about you and your background. Sure, happy to. I guess real brief, you know, I'm, uh, I've been, uh, you know, in kind of a lot of different roles, which I guess for me is uh, to become a CEO, you sort of become a jack of all trades, master of none, right? Um, but uh, I started my career and I went to college for computer science at MIT and started my career in finance um, at a hedge fund, very well known for its culture and its people operations in Connecticut. Um, and then, uh, you know, made the plunge into entrepreneurship and joined a healthcare startup here, here in New York, uh, doing a variety of things. But, but at the beginning, I was kind of just learning everything. So I moved from like an analytical strategy role to, to sales and I ended up managing a sales team. Um, and that's where sort of my, my, the, the kind of different worlds collided, the hard science and engineering and background collided with the softer qualitative, uh, business processes of sales. And, um, and ultimately, you know, I, I started Closer IQ from, uh, my experiences, uh, leading and, and managing a sales team at a very fast growth, uh, company. So fast forward today, you know, Closer IQ, um, I started with my co-founder about three years ago. And essentially what we're building is, uh, the digital career center for, for modern sales professionals. And the thesis is very simple, which is, you know, when you're in college, you can go to your career counselor or career center and get advice and get connected to opportunities. But what what, what do you do when, once you're no longer in college, once you're no longer in academia? Uh, who's going to guide you in industry? Who's going to who's going to be your trusted source of information and career counseling and job opportunities? And and so we looked at the traditional uh, recruiting agency model and, and, and found that it was a very broken model that's existed for many years and does not employ many um, uh, modern technologies and doesn't have any innovation in service and culture. And so what we're building now is a technology-enabled business where we can provide a real uh, recruiting service 
that solves a problem, a fundamental problem that people have, which is making a very smooth and pleasant career transition. One of the big things that, that we, we do that's different beyond building great technology for our, for our own team is building the operations and the culture that can act as the fundamental backbone for how we scale the company. Yeah, I'd love I'd love to come back to the the culture piece because I know that's a big that's a big focus for you, and it's often difficult to get there because you're working in the business, and it's often difficult to pull yourself out to work on the business. But it'd be great to understand, right? Who is your ideal customer, and how how do they go through the process? Our business is really a, a community, and in, in one way, you, you know, one way a lot of people think about it as a double sided marketplace with employers and hiring managers, and then the other side being the candidates. Um, but we actually view it very fluidly, which is everybody in our community is really at any point in time, you know, yes, they can be at a point in time a candidate, but, but over a lifetime, they can be in a hiring manager, they can become a candidate and vice versa. But our ideal customer profile is, is really modern sales professionals in the technology industry. So startups is probably one of the terms that people are most familiar with, but we also work with some pretty big public companies as well. But our, our, our core professional type is, is a salesperson, sales rep, or a customer success, someone who's client-facing in a revenue-impactful type of role. It's really interesting what you said earlier on about the client service piece. And earlier on in the show, we had Shep Hyken on talking about the age of experience in, in even sales, but retail, everything. There's a shift to experience. And that, therefore... The people who may have got you to where you are today are not the people who will get you to where you need to be tomorrow, including your future workforce. And and we'll talk about culture in a sec to frame that. But what kind of qualities does Closer IQ look for in the candidate? Um, internally, what we look for is someone who has a deep passion in helping people. Because I think you, you that's one thing that you can't really fake is in, in a service business you know, you, you want to hire folks who will take care of your customers. And um, if if they have a service mentality of of helping people and being having a passion and in 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 what we have internally, as as, as I've told you, is is this give first mentality. Um, I think it really translates um, the way they they speak, the way they interact, the way that they 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 help customers be successful, and that's something that unfortunately you you can't teach someone in any reasonable amount of time. It, it really goes down to their core values, who they are as a human being, what they value in, in what they do, and the type of work that they do. So I think above everything else, we really look for that sense of service model, service mindset. It's it's like the whole hire for attitude, train for skill, but you hire for this mindset almost and, and we've talked about carol dweck's book mindset and growth mindset but this is it's something that, that i've noticed and shep mentioned as well is the service mentality and that that often comes from your your, your background maybe the jobs you did as a kid or even adversity that you've had in your career yeah likewise i think that most people can relate to that you know they, they start businesses for different reasons for me, I've always found that I, um, I've always been someone that I, I, you know, help people with career advice and, you know, would point people in the right direction, would make introductions in, in, amongst my network. But I think as we kind of built the business, there, there were, you know, just points in time in my life where I felt like it was, it was a mission that I could really get behind. And it's funny because I think a lot of times, you know, companies sort of find their mission over time. 
Um, but, but one thing that I don't think people talk about as much as founders finding their mission in, in time, right? And I don't think that we all sort of wake up in the morning and all of a sudden have a mission. Um, it's usually born out of some kind of personal event, tragedy, or sense of purpose and something that we all kind of seek for as entrepreneurs. But I was lucky enough to, to, to start a business in a, in a, in a vertical in an industry that I really believed in. And then also having kind of some real powerful personal epiphanies that, that helped me reinforce the sense of mission and purpose and what we're doing. That, that is so key, isn't it? The, the sense of mission for a company. And I suppose you see a lot of startups and because the founder like yourself and is CEO and is present and is everywhere in the company, he is the heartbeat of the company that that's kind of easier to manage, but it's when you start to scale up, when you start to hire, even globally, it's very hard to keep that sense of purpose going throughout the whole company. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I always tell the story a lot to my new hires and they kind of ask about, you know, where, where does the culture come from? You know, why did you start this company? And, you know, I went through, I guess, uh, I went, I was part of a company that was growing very quickly and I saw sort of the challenges of scaling fast and hiring the wrong person, the wrong fit and having to, to make those tough, you know, termination decisions as a hiring manager, as a, as a sales manager. And uh, it affected me a lot. It burnt me out as a sales manager because it was emotionally taxing to bring people in and to see them leave the company, especially when they have families and other people that they're supporting. Um, but I always talk about that. That's one side of the motivation of why you started a business unit or why you want to solve a problem. But the whole mentality around giving first as our kind of cultural value our, our only and the only sort of the first and only culture value that we really talk about internally on a, on a regular basis is I had this realization epiphany when I was, um, this is probably about five years ago. I went, I was in, um, Grand Canyons and I remember standing at the, at the, you know, at the top of the bowl and the bowl is huge. I don't know exactly. Don't quote me, but I think it's like 30, 40 miles as the, as the diameter, but there around the bowl, you know, there's a, there's a walking path and they've scaled the bowl so that every step you take represents, uh, you know, a certain number of years in, in the history of the, of the planet, of the earth. And I think a step, a single human step is something on the order of like a million years or even larger in terms of scale. And so what you start to realize, and I think everyone reacts to such, such natural, like wonders of the world differently. But to me, it made me realize just how insignificant our lifespan is in the grand sort of history of the world. And it also made me appreciate a lot more the, that, in my lifetime, I, I meet people and it's so arbitrary, but it's also very super, um, you know, lucky to have kind of crossed the people that we meet, whether it's family members or friends or business workers. And when you, when you strip it all away, you know, what our whole legacy on earth is really about to these, these people that we happen to be coexisting with in that one small piece of our shoe. And it was a really powerful realization. And it kind of made me think a lot more about, business about life and put kind of things in context. And I, and I said to myself, you know, I want to build a business that I feel good about and that one that I think can really help people. And so giving first is sort of a, a nice, you know, and at the time I was reading Adam Grant's book, um, give and take and everything kind of fit in very nicely as to how we're going to be different as a business. So a lot of times now people say, what's your secret sauce? What makes your business different? I don't talk about the technology. You know, I don't talk about some business strategy or, or innovation. I talk about 
customer experience that talk about how we take care of our customers and what we aspire and strive to be as an organization. It's funny, I was, I was watching an old video of Zig Ziglar, the famous sales coach, and he was talking about this. He was saying that so many people complain and when they get into that mindset of complaining about their co-workers or the family and they never look at themselves, you know, and when you point a finger, there's three pointing back at yourself and they never actually realize that and realize that if they reframe everything, that the world takes on a different meaning and so does your work. And you, you've seemed to have done this with your company at the, at a very early stage with your culture to go, this is who we are. And you fit into that or you don't. And quite quickly, when you have that, you can actually weed out, you know, because everybody is going to make a mistake with a hire because everybody interviews so well. But on that, what kind of tips would you have for a hiring manager? So what, what kind of things do you look out for? I think you have to do the exercise as an organization to define what it is that you value. And not everybody has to be that way from day one. I think one of the common misconceptions is that like, well, we can't have that as a cultural value because I'm not sure that everyone is that way. Well, it can be an aspiration. It could be a goal, right? And I think everyone has various levels of compatibility towards a certain cultural value. But I think it has to start with as an organization, you have to sit down and say, what do we, and we did this exercise in our last company offsite where we're big enough to actually have people sit down and say, look around the room and write down a list of attributes of the people around you that you either admire or that, you know, you strive to be yourself. And what we did is we had everybody, you know, write it down their list. And then we would have people and we sat in a circle and everyone took turns going through their lists. And then obviously we told people that you should try not to say something that's already said again. So the last person only had one or two to add where the first person had a ton. But what we basically came down to is we reduce it down to a set of attributes. And those attributes are the values. It's essentially what the group is voting for in terms of the type of people they want to work for, the type of people who want to work with, and what they what the optimization function is for you as an organization and what you want to build. A lot of companies, I think, do these exercises, but what they don't do is build operational processes to reinforce those cultural values. It's one thing to have them, and it's another to remind people and it, that's the phase that we're in now, which is trying to figure out ways such that the values are clear, the values are constantly at the top of mind, and it's constantly reinforced. So some things we're doing now is, you know, we just had a 360 in which we had everybody evaluate their peers um, and score them on each one of our cultural values so that when the person gets the, the feedback, they can understand where, where what the perception of them is in terms of their uh, how good they are at, at each of these cultural values. Um, and we're also creating now these, these cultural value awards that we're going to giving out. And the first one actually we're giving out, um, next week and at the end of this quarter to kick this off. And one of our cultural values is, is embrace challenges. And, uh, it's this notion that, you know, to build a great company, to build a great team, you have to face your challenges head on. You have to embrace it. You have to be proactive and, and deal with it. It's, it's that, notion of uh, entrepreneurship and being a real true owner. And so that cultural value, we bought, we bought some, uh, some boxing gloves and, and on this floor, we have a, a gym with a punching bag. And so, you know, that's become like this synonymous visual of what is the cultural value? It's very simply put embrace challenges. We have a physical award that has significance and we're going to give it to somebody, you know, 
every month so that we can pay recognition and call out when someone's really had to overcome a lot of adversity and really living to that cultural value. So I think those are the sort of the specific things you have to do to to make sure that your cultural values are not just lip service. One last question for you. So you've kind of answered a lot of this, but you've heard stuff like the debt of the cashier and the debt of retail, et cetera. And AI has taken over a lot of these roles. Some people have said the same with sales. So the sense sales, well, sales will be done in by a self-service process in some way but that but the more and more things turn to technology the more and more the human element is is required and this is a debate that that we have a lot in the community about the future of work and you know what is the the role of technology and ai and and essentially automation and outsourcing uh, versus the human experience and that, you know, I, I think about it as I take a bunch of comparables, like the travel industry as an example. You know, travel agents still exist in, in coexistence with Kayak and Priceline and Orbitz and all these search engines. I, I think, though, what does happen with technology is, is it, it really pushes humans to find higher purpose, higher value creation rather than the mundane operational things. So in the old days, a salesperson maybe uh in the role in which they're they're really purely describing what a product does and aligning the product with the buyer you should buy it for these reasons right um but now and with with information readily available with reputation readily available customers are spending much more of their time educating themselves and so when they come to a vendor when they come to a salesperson, they typically already have an impression. They already probably know a lot about your product and services. And this is already very well documented online in terms of that shift. And so even in a, in the last couple of decades with the internet, with inbound marketing and some demand generation innovation, buyers have now changed their role. And, and as a result, sales professionals have to change their role. But as you look to the future in terms of how does AI and technology play into the role of a salesperson, you know, I think what it will end up doing is is it'll it'll take away some of the more operational aspect of sales. You're already seeing that in some of the startups that are tackling various components of the sales process. That category of tools called sales acceleration tools um, ranges from you know automating emails, automating cadences, um, automating uh, you know follow ups and messages and tracking data. But what's so amazing in the U.S. particularly is with the advent of these products, it makes this whole concept of writing an email almost uh, has zero price on it. And so what you're seeing is a lot of companies have are spamming customers. They're writing, they're building these lavish cadences, seven touches where a customer is getting seven automated emails separated by days. And it's very complex. If they do this, they send this email. If they don't do that, then you get this. And we've gone completely the other way. Our approach now is to say, forget the cadences, forget the automation. People don't want to be stuck in that. You can't assume you're smarter than your customer. What people really crave for is a real service, someone who really cares, someone who's taken the time to personalize, to consider your unique campaign points and to listen. And I think what makes us different and what makes a lot of these services different these days is that Rather than using technology to replace a human interaction, they're really using it to make the human interaction more meaningful. And I think that's the key is don't try to replace the human interaction itself. Just make it more meaningful, make it more 
you know, rewarding and make it more, uh, you know, efficient in the way that, that you're going about it. Brilliant advice. And Jordan, wh- where can people find more about Closer IQ? We're online. We, we, run, we publish a blog and we do a ton of writing, um, my, myself as well. But closureiq.com is our, is our domain is C-L-O-S-E-R-I-Q.com. Jordan Wan, CEO and founder of Closer IQ. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.